Justin Searles is co-founder of TestDouble, a software development agency based in Columbus, Ohio. Through his work, Justin uses and contributes to a number of open source tools and also speaks at conferences about a range of software development topics, including the talk, The Social Coding Contract, which highlights some issues he sees in open source projects. Justin, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Do you have any more to share about yourself? There's a lot of brokenness around us, and I think the talk that you referenced, Social Coding Contract, is really just putting a lens on a lot of brokenness in open source. Uh, but I'm not just here to shout at the clouds and to complain about stuff. I think that like by building awareness, we can make it better. So your, your talk raises a number of issues in open source development, both for consumers, like dealing with dependency issues and for maintainers resulting in burnout. But what led you to want to raise these issues? I think that when you really, really distill things down and boil it down to just its kind of core essence, the answer to that question is that our industry has organized itself around essentially a lie. Uh, and that lie is that faster equals better. Anything we can do to like faster to build an app, faster to ship into production, devs that sling code faster than slower devs are 10x better than all of our orientation of how you know technology is sold uh, and described and uh, glorified in our culture is all about like how fast it is, how fast people get stuff done. But the overall attention span is so brief that we just uh, uh, we tend not to focus on problems. Let's dive into a couple of these issues. You say that those building with open source optimize for convenience, but often at the cost of long-term fragility. What do you mean by that, and how has this impacted your own projects? By fragility, there, what I don't mean is that like there's some kind of cabal of open source developers trying to make a mess for you. Uh, what I really mean is that when you ship something into production these days, uh, odds are it's uh, you're writing like a little tiny layer, 10% or less of the code that's getting executed in production is stuff that you wrote. Most of it is a mountain high amount of, uh, of application dependencies that you stand on top of, some directly, some transitively that you like got pulled in via those other dependencies. It's a lot of stuff that, frankly, we don't understand really well. And that's fine for getting started because obviously you got to be competitive. And if, if somebody else can get a prototype out the door quickly, you can get really fast feedback. You know, uh, There's a lot to be gained from it. We just need to move cautiously enough to understand, okay, so it's been three months, it's been six months, Like, let's actively look at like how are these dependencies uh, serving us? Have they been a pain to use? Are they like have any died or gone out of maintenance? Like what's the influence that they've had on our uh, the design of our code? Right? Are we really just like writing cookie cutter code to satisfy um, all the APIs that we are depending on, or are we really growing a domain model that very nicely fits like a glove the problem that our application is trying to solve? Those are the sorts of things that you know I I would kind of call fragility that's baked into this process of looking for something to help get us a quick start. Another facet of this that's really interesting to me is that coming from like the Ruby community where like Ruby on Rails was really huge, became huge almost a decade ago now. That was one big monolithic framework. And that was like very difficult for me to start my first application because I would push it up, but then I had N plus one queries everywhere and like all sorts of like pain of not knowing how to do a magical little thing. And I could remediate that on one project and it would take a long time and everyone would pay the price of learning Rails. But on subsequent ones, we could at least reuse that knowledge. But nowadays, I think the trend is so anti-framework and so pro-modularization, tiny libraries that all do their own thing. We've all become effectively framework maintainers. Um, not to say everyone's inventing their own, but we're like curators now of this manifest of here's our, my 30 dependencies and no one else 
in the world will have used all 30 dependencies that are all exactly the same versions that you do, which means that now the onus is on you to make sure that they all work together correctly. And if there's any interplay between the two of them that doesn't, uh, it's it's up to each project team who's tasked with building an application to also be responsible for troubleshooting, uh, you know, two potentially divergent uh, dependencies that are stepping on one another. It's definitely an interesting perspective. I haven't thought about that myself as, as a curator of frameworks. Yep. And it's not like small is bad uh, and that m- big monolithic stuff is good. It's just these are the sorts of costs and the responsibilities and the roles that we should be thinking about. Um, that that go with maintaining something built that way. Uh, after five to six years of working with a lot of um, you know open source technology projects, you start to see a lot of patterns. Just do basic pattern recognition and be like, oh, like we're finding like uh, writing adapters for this third party thing is really really hard, or its API is seeping all over our project. Like, how can we guard ourselves and and uh, uh, push that out, build some scar tissue between us and that dependency because it's been found to be kind of problematic. All those sort of good habits, I think, uh, tend to grow organically. Uh, and they, But they can only happen if people have an awareness that all these dependencies leaking all over their stuff lead to design problems long-term. We often approach using popular open source libraries with the assumption of security because anyone can read them and with trust because they have a number of respected contributors. But you don't buy that. Why is this? The, the concept that you're alluding to uh, was introduced in a book called The Cathedral and the Bazaar uh, like 15 years ago, maybe longer. But that was written in a time when when most people were thinking about open source, they're thinking about really big operating systems like Windows versus Unix, like a total black box versus this thing that has like one or two or three major big projects that have tens of thousands of developers looking at really closely. And over the last 15 years, everything's inverted. Now GitHub hosts hundreds of thousands of open source projects. Uh, and I think at some point we probably eclipsed the point where there were literally more libraries being used than eyeballs looking at the actual source code of other people's open source. Uh, and so uh, in theory, that would work. The problem is, of course, that now there's more projects than there are eyeballs. The other thing that I think affects this is that the stack, the open source stack that we stand on gets a little taller every year. Every year we find some new common solution to a a well-known problem and we stand on it. And 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when people were starting to grow thoughts about what open source would mean for security is, uh, well, you know, like OpenSSL, for example, like, oh, well, you know, like that's that's a pretty cool library. Like I'm going to use that for for how I do uh, my network securely. But now it's such a given that, of course, everything depends on OpenSSL that we, you know, it's mature. It's mostly settled down. There's not a lot of maintainers. It's not a sexy thing to invest in from a marketing perspective if you're Facebook or Google. So it mostly just gets no attention. Uh, and if, if even if you are a really big company and you understand that your like OpenSSL working is critical to your business, you know that like it's a it's a Mexican standoff where every company in the world is all they all depend on it. So it's certainly like. It's, it's very important that somebody be auditing the security of a fundamental thing like that, but it's nobody's responsibility to do that. And no one feels that accountability. So uh, I think that's, that's where we've really fallen on our face, where something like uh, Shellshock happens to Bash, and it's a program almost every developer uses, and lots of different Internet of Things stuff use, but zero people feel like it's my job to go on the weekend and, and read up on you know, bash to make sure that it's secure. You de- you describe the life of an open source project maintainer as being something of a roller coaster ride that all too often ends with the maintainer getting burnt out. Why do you think that this is commonly the case? On one hand, we kind of glamorize uh, prolific open source authors. There's there's 
maybe hundreds of thousands of open source projects out there, but there are a handful of people who are like, hey, when I'm doing some node stuff, I'm going to look for a library that TJ Holloway Chuck posted because he's got a lot of them and his other ones were pretty good. So I'll use this one too. Uh, of course, he up and left node one day, uh, which was problematic for anyone who like kind of lived in his stack. We don't do this intentionally. We don't seek to live in the celebrity culture. It's just when there are so many options out there, we need all of the tribal markers for quality that we can find. And that person wrote a good thing and I like that, how their approach to something else. So I'm going to use all their stuff. And that's how that sort of uh, power accrues. Now, the second phenomenon, which I think is really interesting, is as personality uh, drives so much open source adoption, the asymmetric relationships just fail to scale. Like uh, an illustration uh, that, I, that, I, that I was thinking of is like, imagine that you found a golden lemon and it could squeeze an infinite amount of juice. And so you start an, op an open source lemonade stand. And so you squeeze all the lemonade from that lemon all day long for anyone who wants it. And the early adopters of your lemonade stand are going to be like, whoa, you're brilliant. This is amazing. Of course, they're going to get sick of the lemonade and move on eventually. But once the word gets out, even though you'll have gotten that initial fame and excitement of getting a lot of positive attention, pretty soon the line's going to be so long that the upper bound on how much lemonade comes out is your own physical, laborious, painful labor. And at that point, you're at a crossroads. You have to decide, like, and this is analogous to an open source maintainer. It's like, I don't get any distinct joy out of this anymore. I'm mostly just doing work for people for free, and they don't really appreciate it because they're used to it now. So do I continue out of some sort of misplaced sense of duty, or do I just quit and leave people in a lurch? I think that's how a lot of open source projects slowly atrophy and die. How do you think we should go about fixing this? I think that the 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 successful long-term sustainable open source projects are ones where a community formed around them in proportion to their growth and success. Uh, and I think all parties involved need to be, A, recognize that, acknowledge that, and B, accept some amount of responsibility other than treating open source like a corporate welfare program, right? So if I'm a maintainer, I acknowledge that now after writing this talk and thinking about this a lot is like, okay, so this, this project has 100 stars. Like, I really shouldn't be the only owner on this uh, repo or this NPM library uh, or this Ruby gem. Let's pull in a couple other owners because other people are joining and like, oh, this project has 1,000 stars. Like, let's look at getting like a code of conduct, a, a governance model, you know, some kind of mission statement for what this project's about as the core tenants. Um, you know, oh, it's at 10,000 stars. Like, we should probably start to have like a technical committee. So I get out of the role of like dictator for life. Um, because it's now way bigger than than what I meant for it to be. So it's a bit of humility, right? Like seeding control gradually uh, to avoid that burnout. But then from the perspective of users, they need to be actively seeking and, and accepting like, you know, hey, I should be contributing back to this. And I, I should work with my employer to make sure that I have the time to be able to contribute back to the projects that we use that are interesting to me so that they have the support they need so that they don't just wither on the vine um, and, and die, even though hundreds or thousands of applications might continue to depend on them. Um, what else can project maintainers do to recruit more and better contributors and reduce friction for those interested in contributing? I really like the idea of an imagined application that was like a, a match.com for putting together people who have open source projects that need additional contributors. Maybe they have a lot of issues. Maybe, like I said, they're getting more popular and they recognize this need with people who are looking to work on open source. Maybe they want the additional visibility uh, or the prominence that comes from having a lot of open source stuff. Maybe they just want something to program on. Um, maybe they just want to improve their skills. Whatever the reason, 
Uh, it would be really cool if some if an application say used um, OAuth or storage your various credentials to be like, hey, you use this library and that library author is looking for people, or hey, you write a lot of Node.js and this person's uh, got a Node.js project that's got this many stars and he is desperate for a maintainer. Something to connect these people because I think that like the, if you look at the network graph of people who are publishing open source, it's too small for them to try to solve it by you know, simply tweeting out or, or, or going to a user group and being like, hey, will someone please maintain this? Because usually by the time they know to ask for help, it's late enough that that project is no longer uh, appealing. Like it's probably mostly settled down and the only work left to do is to put up with all of the random people who want basically free tech support. Those are some ideas, but you know, short of that, it's hard. It's better to try to solve that early than solve that late. So in, uh, in in problematic projects at work, we use techniques like improving documentation, retrospectives, standups, pair programming to overcome some of these problems. Yet you really see them applied in open source projects. Do you think there's a role for these and other ways of improving communication between maintainers, contributors, and users? So comparing like a product team and a business versus an open source team, it's almost like in a, in a product team, you'll have people, role players who specialize in one area or the other. In an open source team, you have like a dozen people who all want to be point guard. Like they, they don't necessarily have any incentive uh, or organization to like, you know, be a role player that slots into just like one particular um, aspect of the project, unless there's somebody or some group of people who are smart enough to uh, and and experienced enough to be able to like you just did carve out all of these individual responsibilities like if we don't do these things problems are going to happen like we have to individually justify because we don't have some boss we don't have a paycheck coming uh typically we need to to justify for ourselves why these activities are important and then some of them are just shit work compared to other stuff like everyone wants to be the genius who gets to code a thing and gets to be famous for building it but if you look at somebody who Maybe they're a great writer and they're a great teacher and instructor. And if they wrote the documentation pages, then that would be fantastic for the community. But that doesn't necessarily get a lot of the same accolades or glory. And so it's contingent on everyone else in the team to lift that person up, to point out how great they are and how they're helping. And that's what I see on um, really successful open source teams is giving people a reason to fill those roles that isn't just about money. Because once you put money into it, it may as well be a, a startupified or a productified uh, open source and kind of like, you know, name but not spirit only project. What do you think of initiatives like To Do Group and Ruby Together? And what more do you think uh, companies who use open source components can be doing? Friends with Brandon Keepers at GitHub, who's like, uh, uh, I think, done a lot of their work through through To Do Group. And it sounds like in many ways, it, 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 its goal is to solve a lot of the systemic problems or at least address as a bunch of companies realizing like, hey, none of us individually have an individual interest in, in being the one to own the shared concerns like security audits. But we understand that whenever there is one, we all have a huge business risk uh, to that. And so I love the idea of them coming together, putting a little bit of funding behind it and seeing where it goes. Uh, I don't think that it's going to turn into this thing where it's developing a lot of standards and process that, that other people are going to feel beholden to. You know, they might publish some examples, like a, an example code of conduct you could use or something like that to help people get started. But I think its biggest point of value is going to be how do we solve some of these interweaving problems that no individual person feels responsible for. Uh, when you think of uh, organizations like Ruby Together, uh, I feel I don't know um, very much about Ruby Together per se or properly, um, but in conversations I've had with 
other people about things like GitTip or, or efforts to try to put money into, into projects that, that are commonly used as support. On one hand, like sponsorships like, hey, we're Ruby gems. We need hosting. You know, uh, that, that, that is a real clear cost. Where it gets a little muddy is I think a lot of people have great intrinsic motivators for working on open source. And when you just kind of like put a bounty on, hey, if you get this feature done or individual sponsorships for like, hey, I want this feature as a company in this open source thing. So we're just going to fund two months of the developer's time. Like a lot of those are really interesting and some of them might scale and some of them might work. Uh, but but it's important to know that it, there's still this impedance mismatch. Like the reason anyone starts writing an open source thing isn't to get paid. Uh, it's because it scratches a niche or it's something that they found interesting. And there's a real risk that once you start throwing money at it, whether it's at the individual or if it's at specific um, features and issues, you, you're probably going to change the incentive structure uh, and, and alter the course of where that project goes. So I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious around uh, the argument that open source work is labor too, and, and we need to be paying directly for people's open source labor through some kind of like patron model. Uh, another example of, uh, of, of that that stands out to me is uh, I've got a friend who's a very prolific open source developer, uh, and he could totally start a Kickstarter tomorrow and raise $200,000 a year if he wanted to just do open source. And he won't do it because he's a smart guy. And he knows that as soon as he's got however many $5 donations it takes to get up to that number, those are going to act like customers. Like when they don't get the feature that they want or they don't get their bug fixed, they're all going to come knocking down. And then it's that lemonade stand problem again of like, not only do they expect the free lemonade, but it was $5 lemonade and they paid for it and they want a refund. So all of these things sound like solutions, but I don't think that any of them are ever going to solve the problem of, of, code that's written for an egalitarian reason or a non-financially motivated reason uh, can't just be solved by um, throwing dollars at it. Can you recommend any resources for those wanting to learn more about running sustainable open source projects or those wanting to contribute to open source more effectively? So first, when I meet people at conferences or user groups, a lot of them will come up to me and it's like, it's like a hallway confession almost like, hey man, I love all your open source stuff. And I would totally open source stuff too. I've got this thing that I've been working on for like five years, but I'm not, it's not ready yet. It's not ready to be open sourced yet. And uh, I just want to say, you know, okay, bye. And so like, clearly like they felt the urge to come to talk to me about their, their not yet open source thing, but they have this kind of like intention towards contributing. Like what I, what I always tell them is like, look, there's never going to be a day where you feel like your thing is ready enough for public consumption that you're just going to flick from private to public and ready the floodgates. First of all, like I probably have like 200 or 300 repositories between Testable and my personal account. I, th- that calculation is expensive. I, I, w- I just default to open sourcing absolutely everything. Uh, and you've never heard of, of, of 99% of my repositories, I guarantee it, because most of them weren't that useful, maybe didn't go great, maybe um, uh, just didn't get viral, and, and a couple others did. But the only reason that those ones did get successful is because I was defaulting to open sourcing everything that I do that doesn't have, you know, like a strict, um, you know, business model uh, in front of it. 
Um, so that's what I tell people about getting started in open source in the first place is like, if you just publish everything openly, like that's going to look real good when you have all this stuff to show, even if it's not perfect. Oh, and don't worry about people reading your code and judging you because a lot of people say they read open source, but like we discussed earlier about security, nobody actually reads any open source. Like if there's a bug or something, they look at it, but no one's going to read your code. They're going to see that you have 30 repositories and that presumably they work if they have like a little green badge at the top. So please just publish. The uh, the other bit of advice about like resources for a successful, sustainable, long-term, like once something's been successful, what do you look at? I don't think that book's been written. I don't think that there is a starter pack for how to build a community, uh, at least not in the open source world. But what I would look at is look at the non-vendor backed, very successful projects. Uh, the two that are most relevant to my personal technical experience are Ruby on Rails uh, and even more so Ember.js. Uh, when you look at Ember, like, yes, there's a handful of agencies that kind of back it and formally sponsor it. Like, obviously, Tilda is the Ember company, but they're not, you know, they're not Oracle. They're not they're not Facebook or Google. Uh, they're a small group of developers who just care a lot about making a 10-year framework and, and putting in place all of the structure that they need to, like, build the community around it. And now, like, look at it. It's like... Uh, there are Ember meetups in, I think, 30 different cities. Uh, we have one here in Columbus. You know, there's a very strong affinity and a strong sense of ownership by even people who just use Ember. And so they've done a great job of bubbling people up, encouraging contribution and encouraging engagement really at every level. Uh, so, so look at everything that they're doing. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Anyone's watching this and wants to get in touch with me directly, please don't be shy. Just justin at testdouble.com. I'd be happy to talk to you.